We all want to leave out the elements of our story that are the most vulnerable, but those are the pieces of your story that are gonna form connections with people. Vulnerability, authority, and grit in equal measure are the recipe for success for women in law. There has to be a passion behind doing this for you to even be doing it because in most cases, women are not set up for this. They weren't handed a law firm from their dad. This was something that they felt called to do for a reason. In 2021, women made up over half of all summer associates for the fourth year in a row. Yet equity partners and multi-tier law firms continue to be disproportionately white men. Only 22% of equity partners are women. We would like to see that change. Hello, and welcome to LawHer, the show where we celebrate the trailblazing attorneys and entrepreneurs who are changing the game for women in the legal field. Be inspired by their stories, learn from their mistakes, build community, and look forward to the future they're helping build for the next generation of women in law. I am Sonia Palmer, your host and VP of Operations at Rankings, the SEO agency of choice for personal injury lawyers. This is LawHer. Megan Harkroder, owner of Conversations Digital, is a master at extracting compelling narratives. The former journalist has helped multiple law firms and attorneys get clear on their brand. As we all know, confused customers don't buy. Clear narratives help win the trust and ultimately the contacts of more clients. She shares why the most important story is our own, why vulnerability wins more clients and how women can construct a clear and authentic digital persona. When Megan was on our companion podcast, Personal Injury Mastermind, she revealed that her first career in local news was not sustainable. Today, she explains how her journalism training prepared her for her current position. Let's dive in. I learned a lot as a news reporter, uh, most of which is how to put a story together and how to create a story that really hits with people uh, that they pay attention to. But yeah, it's... Being a reporter, especially a TV reporter, where you're doing your own camera work, you're going out to chase your own stories, you're literally chasing people down the street. It's not super sustainable because news is very much, it happens and then it's gone. Everyone forgets about it. Um, and so you really have to, like, every day is a whole new hustle. And every day there's a, a lot of anxiety about if you're going to get the story. So I sort of took the part that I liked about news, which was creating the story from start to finish and said, how can I like apply this to a career where I'm creating something that I know for a fact will stand the test of time? And that's when I started getting really interested in writing biographies and story-based marketing copy. And then sort of took that leap into starting your own agency, which is terrifying. Were you afraid? Oh God. Yes. I was, I was afraid, but I was also really young and the risk was lower because I was working in a job that I hated, um, working a lot of hours and making no money. So I knew that if I failed, I could always do something else. I always waited tables through college and I've worked at a grocery store. I've worked in retail. I've done all the things. So at the very end of the day, while, you know, I jumped to starting my own business from this, you know, having an actual full-time job, that job didn't pay better than the night shift at McDonald's, right? Like you can always get another job. So yeah. So when I started my business, it was definitely, there was a runway for sure. There was a lot to learn. So would you say then sort of a way to get over that fear is start low risk? Yeah. So I, I'm very risk averted. So I was very careful in the planning of how I exited my job. The first thing that I did was I ended up getting this contract, uh, this contract gig, which was really interesting to write a not code, but write the content for a New Orleans tour app. Uh, a set of two of them. So one was a French Quarter walking tour, one was a Garden District walking tour. And the guy creating this app sent me on a ton of guided tours of both places. So I got to go spend a lot of time in the archives of the library fact checking because surprise, half of what they tell you on the tours is not accurate. What? <laughs> and, Amazing. And that gig paid $2,000, which was like you know, more than what I took home in a month. 
So I felt comfortable doing that. And then I applied for a part-time job as a community manager of a co-working space. And we sort of had this deal where, you know, I did that. I got to sort of run my business from there and I got to meet people while I was there, which is actually how I met Ernie, the attorney, which is how I started working with lawyers. When you were starting out back then, what did your growth goals look like? And then how have they changed? So I had no plan except make enough money to live. And originally it was just, can I be a freelancer that supports myself? Um, And then it became my partner, who's now my husband, uh, but my partner at the time was helping me in the evenings do some of the work. And then it got to be so much. And then his job wouldn't let him take off time to go on vacation. So I was like, well, let me see if I can make a job for him. I have to pay someone, right? Because I, you know, things were growing. Uh, So I did that. And then I had a friend who needed some work. She was staying home, taking care of a kid and just like, you know, started doing like admin stuff. And then that turned into her wanting it to be a full-time job. And I was like, cool, I think we can do this. So every piece of growth was specifically... I know as a a business owner, the growth is supposed to be to make yourself and the business more money. But for me, it was really cool because it was like, how can I make jobs for the people I love? And that was really fun. That is very, very cool. So you mentioned Ernie, the attorney. Ernie, the attorney. So first sort of started with solo practitioners, solo attorneys. What were the major pain points you were seeing for digital marketing with lawyers? particularly solo? Initially when I started, yeah, this is like 10, about 10 or so years ago, lawyers didn't know what social media was and they were very afraid of it, but they were under the impression that they needed to use it and they didn't know how and they didn't want to. And there was just a lot of aggravation in general. Um, So that's when I met Ernie, who was a practicing lawyer at the time, but was also creating these educational events for other lawyers So he brought me in and I got to teach first. So I got to really learn what people's questions were, what they actually wanted um, before I started figuring out like, oh, what services can I actually provide here? So you said it was 10 years ago. Do you feel like that pinpoint has stayed the same or has it changed? It's changed a lot because we all have a solid understanding of social media now, um, even if it's just Facebook. Everyone understands Facebook. Everyone uses Facebook personally, whether you like it or not, you use it. And so people have an idea of how social media works. It's not so intimidating, but now it's kind of like it's that extra thing. So, you know, before it was like, oh, wait, I have to have a website. Uh, that's so annoying. And like, I either have to maintain that myself or pay someone to do it. Right. And then it became, well, now you have social media. You have to maintain it yourself or you have to pay someone to do it. So it's kind of like, another checkbox that's not really optional anymore. 10 years ago, it was optional. If you jumped on social media, like a lot of our clients jumped on social media early and we were able to gain so much success and um, like traction just because they were the only lawyers using social media in town. Even like 10 years ago, you had websites that were nice to have and then became had to have. And it was sort of the same with social. It was nice to have and then it became had to have. And I do think they're learning because they will, like, I feel like people have been very quick to adopt TikTok. Yeah. Which I feel like five, seven years ago, they've been like, nah, you know, so I feel like they're learning. Yeah. TikTok's already saturated with lawyers and people ask me about it all the time. And it's like, if you don't have a shtick at this point, like there's no point in starting. And if you don't want to be nationally known, there's not a, there's not really a point in TikTok either. So how does Conversations Digital address these problems? So our focus is starting with the hub, which is the website. So anything you're doing, as you know, SEO, social media, uh, anything that you're doing to drive traffic to the website is great. But then when someone gets to the website, they have to want to call you. They have to be interested in hiring you. And if this is not a referral, if this is someone who just came in as a cold lead, it's your website's job to build trust with that person. So that is our main focus is creating websites that are 
you know, beautiful and functional, but also really build trust. So we're really copy first. A lot of designers build out this really pretty structure and they're like, Hey, we need some words to put in this box or let's put a blurb here. Um, we start with copy. We start with a story, a message, the main points that we want to hit for that particular person. And then we work with the designer to create the actual visual framework around it. So that is really where we shine and where we start. So a lot of the people that we've worked with, we built websites for them and sent them on their way. And they're still doing really, really, really great because oftentimes for a niche solo lawyer, if you have a great website, you don't have to do a ton of stuff, right? If you're just like one person, you're going to get enough leads. Um, and then we started offering more marketing and social media services to those lawyers who were like, oh, great, this is great. But okay, now I want to hire another lawyer. Now I want to expand. Now I want to grow into this area. Um, or, you know, those who are in highly competitive areas and need a little bit more. So we do the marketing part. Uh, we do the website part. We, uh, we love partnering with you guys over at rankings with clients uh, so that you can do the SEO part of things. And uh, yeah, dream team. Dream team. I think you're right. If a solo attorney, because a lot of times solo attorneys, they want to do it all. You know, they're practicing law. They're trying to do their marketing. They're trying to do accounting. They're hiring. They're leading. They're trying to do it all. And if they can get a solid website, <laughs> yeah, that's something that can come off of their plate. Just start there. Yep. And I do think you have an, like an alternative approach to do copy first. I don't, I, I can't think of another firm that I know of that starts with copy, but it makes a ton of sense. Yeah. And not even just homepage copy. We actually start with the attorney biography because that helps us develop the story and like really, really get to know the actual person that we're working with. Yeah, for sure. We have had women like Sarah Williams and Reb Maisel who are adamant that social media is a great equalizer and elevator for women in the legal space. Do you see mastering social media as particularly important for female attorneys? It really, really depends. Mastering social media, yes, if you enjoy doing it and if you feel passionate about that and if it energizes rather than drains you, yes, I think it's really important to get good at it, learn all the tools, you know, and, and take lead on that yourself because people are connecting with people on social media. If it's actually coming from you as a person, it's going to be so much more powerful than if your marketing team is generating content for you. Uh, however, for a lot of lawyers, especially growing firms, uh, this is not their top priority. They are business owners. They are focused on the actual business component. And it, it's no longer like hyper-personal because they're marketing an entire firm rather than just the individual. So for those people, especially the ones who don't like social media, um, it's more advantageous to just outsource that. Uh, know what's happening. You want to know what's happening and what's going on. And you definitely want to see, you know, what your marketing team is doing. Um, but yeah, and that's kind of a rule for life. Does it energize you or does it drain you? And then from there, decide which path you're going to take. That's very good advice. I think sometimes the social media, it's like, how much do you pay attention to branding and brand awareness and then lead generation within a single like marketing budget, you know? Yeah, because it's different for everyone. I don't know. How do you guys do it? Is there like a formula where you're like, okay, this is the goal and then this is what we're going to put into these buckets? That's, I was like, I was thinking out loud about it. You know, like, is there a formula? If there isn't, we should probably make one because it can, it can be like very overwhelming very quickly. It's like you mentioned a shtick. Yeah. You know, like if you don't have one, you can spin your wheels and a lot of time and money on non-lead generating marketing? I think if there was a formula, it would have to be an if this, then that sort of algorithm, just because there's so many factors that go in. And we've tried to build formulas and frameworks for social media strategies that could apply to anyone new coming in. And ultimately, we modify it so much every time that we just recently decided, like, let's just start fresh with the conversation and then build around that. To spark a conversation around the brand, around you and your firm, there needs to be the framework of a cohesive and intriguing story. Women are generally expected to be polished in every aspect of their lives. Is social media just one more place where women have to perform? 
Here, Megan discusses how we can show up a little less polished and still be taken seriously. I think women are expected to show up in general in a more polished way, but I think we're pulling back from that. So I noticed, you know, 10, even five years ago, working with women attorneys, when we would discuss branding, there was a strong, strong emphasis on, I don't want pink anywhere on my website. I don't want it to be feminine because I have to balance out the fact that I am a woman. Um, and now we're seeing a movement towards like rocket, right? Um, I just got to do a site for, for someone whose inspiration for becoming a lawyer was actually the movie Legally Blonde and she loves pink. And so we got to do this beautiful brand that was still really professional and polished because you can do that with any color. Um, there's so many colors. And while it was, there was a softness, right? There was an empathetic component to it. Um, but there's also the authority there too. So I think with anyone, it's going to be a balancing game. And I think women are actually at an advantage at this point in the game as attorneys, because we are known for having a level of empathy. And a lot of times clients are looking for that. They're looking to be heard. They're looking to be understood. And the assumption is that a man versus a woman, the assumption is that a woman's going to listen more and actually care more. So, you know, if I'm looking for a lawyer, that's the direction that I'm going in. 100%. I think also with the pink don't default to pink, own the pink. Like that's the difference yeah. when you're using it, you know? Don't default, own it. Yes, 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 yes. Yes. Part of having a successful digital presence is clearly curating the narrative of who we are. We constantly hear that confused customers don't buy and that people buy from people. So potential clients better know what you are about. They better. Right? <laughs> so how can women think about constructing a digital persona for themselves and their firms that are authentic but clear? I like to start with both who you are as a person and why you do what you do, and then look at what are people coming to you for? Are they going through a divorce? Do they need an estate plan? Did they get in an accident? Look at both of those things and see how you can talk to them about their specific issue while telling your story. So if you're a criminal defense lawyer and you or someone in your family has a background with run-ins with the law, like that is part of your story. Um, there's a lot of things that people will initially on their interview, they'll tell us and then they'll say, but don't share that, right? Because we all want to leave out the elements of our story that are the most vulnerable, Um but those are the pieces of your story that are going to form connections with people. Um, and that applies across genders, across the board. But in particular, I've noticed with women specifically, if you can share and identify with what this other person's going through, they can feel like they know you before they've even hired you. And the biography page is the second visited page on a website after the homepage. If someone's like thinking of hiring you, the next thing that they're going to do when they arrive on your site is go to your page. So you could, of course, have what I call an obituary style biography where you're just listing your accolades and where you went to law school, but no one cares about that. Literally no one cares. No one's going to read it. Lawyers do not like to hear that potential clients don't care where they went to law school, but they don't. They care about the story. So I always bump the education, accolades, all of that kind of stuff to the bottom of the page because um, that's almost just a checkbox, right? After you've read the story, you're like, oh, did they go? Yep, they're, they look really accredited. Let's go with it. They did that. They did those things. Can you be authentic without being vulnerable? It's hard. And it's not as interesting. And the whole thing is that you want people to read the story. Yeah, I think you have to be vulnerable to be authentic. And I do think the authenticity is what is leading to conversations, which is then leading to conversions. So I think that's extremely important. And then, yeah, so getting to the meat of our personal stories can bring up a lot of fear, not being enough, who really wants to hear my story anyway, or maybe even genuinely not knowing how to frame a personal narrative. 
How do you go about extracting that story or genuine narrative from your clients that help establish their brand? Well, most people don't know how to frame a personal narrative in an impactful way because you're you. You know all about you. You know all of your stories. And it's really hard for you to sit down and say, you know, which parts of these are important and which things do I extract into a biography? Um, If you're able to do a really good job of that, like... Nine out of 10 chances, you're a total narcissist, right? And maybe making some (laughs) of it up. I was not able to write my own biography. And I do this all day, every day for other people. I had someone else write my story. And I have two versions of my story. I have my professional story. That's also very personal on my uh, business website. And I get very vulnerable in that because whenever I'm asking other people to get vulnerable, I want to show them that, look, I put this shit out on the internet for the world to see too. So I know that it works. And then I have the other version of my story on my personal blog, which, you know, some of our clients do have multiple things that they're doing. So we'll create different versions of that story for them, but you need someone else to write it or at least frame it up for you. And it needs to address um, some major key points. One, it has to say right off the bat what it is that you do. It has to say why you do it. It needs to it needs to establish some sort of empathy for your client, right? If you're an immigration lawyer and your parents were immigrants and they're your heroes, you know that is that is part of your story that immediately shows empathy for your clients because you've seen your actual parents go through that process, um, and and authority too. So. You don't want to rattle off like this million in settlements and this million in settlements. But if you can tell a story within a story of a client and their success, like not highlighting your, because the best way to highlight your success is to highlight someone else's success and show off how they received justice without focusing on what you did. That can be very, very powerful. Very powerful. I love what you said too. I don't know that we can tell our own stories. It's hard. I think you need someone else because we're pulling from like a whole database, a whole catalog of information. And I do, I think you need someone else to sort of piece it together so that it's a story and not just info. Yeah. Not just a list of bullet points of, yeah, my first round was, there were so many side stories, dude. Like we had, I, I didn't know what was important. So I just like threw all of it in there and and it took some turns. It took some serious turns. So it someone else had to come in and be like, okay, why this? Refine this. No one cares about this and turn it into something that people will actually read and that will resonate with them. And I had to drop my feeling of being worried about how my story would be perceived by others especially your peers, which is a really common thing with lawyers. Like what, what are they going to think of me? And for me, you know, I talked about, you know, wanting to get out of my small town and not have a bunch of babies. And, you know, and my worry was that, you know, I have friends and family who did stay in the small town and have a bunch of babies and, you know, marry the farmer and all that stuff. And like, that's not shitting on their lives. You know, that's their path. And I respect their path, but I'm saying it's not mine. But there was that initial worry of, I almost pulled that out of my story because I was like, I don't want anyone to think that I think this is wrong. It's just that it was wrong for me. So I left it in there and, you know, someone might have a problem with it, but they didn't tell me anything about it if they did. So So Jen Gore, I think on an episode of Law Her, she talks about this as far as branding, but I think it works here too, where people think they know your story, like, or you can tell it to them. Like they think something of you regardless, but you can guide the direction by actually saying your story. Like you have one to other people. Yeah. Whether it's true or not, is sort of up to you. So I think that is a motivation to spit it out, you know, like be truthful, be honest, say it as it is. Because people are thinking what they want to already anyways. You can't control that. So Yeah. And if your story is boring, then it means it doesn't really say anything at all, which means it's not memorable, which means you're less likely to get a call. You're less likely to get referrals. You're less likely to make an impact on that person in any which way. Even if part of your story is like, whoa, that was a lot. 
someone is still thinking about you a little bit later. They're still going, oh, damn, that was interesting. Yes, for sure. Is it different between men and women when you do these? I want to say it's the same process, but what we get out of women tends to be more vulnerable. And um, I know Molly, my, my copywriter, and I usually collaborate on stories together. And I know she especially gets excited when we have a new female attorney client um, because somehow it's just the process is always more fun. And so, and that's kind of, you know, where we're going, even as a company, we're already, it's very niche to say we do web and marketing for solo small firm lawyers. It takes it to the next level. If you say specifically women owned firms, um, which is kind of the direction that we're going in because we're noticing a trend of where we're able to be the most effective and do the most good. And part of that is trust. So with women, we are able, and as a women-owned firm, um, we are able to build trust with our clients. So we're able to get them to be more honest and vulnerable with us. And we take the time to do it, you know, and the result of that is that they're connecting more with their audience. And the result of that is building more clients. And so everything kind of builds on top of that. So you mentioned earlier that you're risk averse <laughs> and you're asking these, you know, female attorneys, this is their business. Come to you, be vulnerable, share what's authentic. How do you then flip that to courage, pride? How do you then flip that narrative? That's scary into something that's strong. Yeah. So you have to pair that with something else, right? What is it that you survived? But also, what did you come out as on the other side? You know, you got to take it a step further than who you are and ask, like, what are you made of? So there's a lot of grit involved. If you're a woman-owned law firm, especially a solo, there's grit. There's grit there. You're not just like, Oh yeah. Passing the day along, skipping. Like it's there is grit, there is hard work, there is determination. And as a woman who started my own business without really knowing what I was doing, um, I know how hard that is and the upward climb and the roller coaster. And there has to be a passion behind doing this for you to even be doing it. Because in most cases, women are not set up for this. They weren't handed a law firm from their dad. They weren't, you know, pushed into this or encouraged to do this. This was something that they felt called to do for a reason. So, so there's the pairing of the vulnerability and the authority and the grit there. And those two things, you know, you gotta, it's like a recipe. You have to put the right amount of each thing. And then how do you translate that into a web presence or social media? So we always start with the bio. The bio is the foundational story. And it does talk about how you help your clients, but it's really your story. And then we go to the homepage and we focus more on the client journey and how you're uniquely suited to help them. And so all of our social media and everything is like really rooted out of there. And we only work with niche lawyers, right? Like if you're doing five different practice areas, like I can't, I can't help you. That's not a story. Um, but, you know, whatever that niche is, all of the content flows off specifically. Like we have a criminal defense lawyer who's very drug focused and very uh, passionate about helping her clients, not just, you know, get their charges dropped, but like get in, get the rehabilitation that they need. Um, and so a lot of the content is focused in that direction. Her stories focus in that direction. Uh, the social media branches off of that. So it all has to make sense together. To make all of these pieces work, it's not just about sitting in a locked room. Talk to me about your team and your org chart. <laughs> How many people are at conversations now. You know, I love a good org chart. <laughs> a good org chart. I know. Now I, I wish we were doing chart. a screen share so I could bring up the org chart. We'll pull it up. <laughs> but so yeah, it's we're seven now, seven people. Nice. So we've kind of separated ourselves into a web team. We have a designer, a developer, and an SEO, structural, data, everything else person. We have editorial, which is myself and Molly copywriting. And then we have marketing, which is Colleen and Karina. And we kind of all participate. So it was a small team with a small client roster. We had the opportunity to all have a conversation about one client 
and come up with ideas and brainstorm. And it's, it's a lot of fun. So in terms of, I, I know everyone's supposed to want to scale their company. The biggest that I would want to get is a team of 10 because beyond that, it's too many people to keep up with. It's too many clients to know everyone personally. Um, so typically, you know, your account manager will know the client really well. Um, but in this case, like we all do. So like we know when our clients are having a new baby or, you know, just got, you know, a big, a big life event just happened to them. Um, there, we had a client whose dad passed away recently. So like Colleen sent him flowers and, um, there's just, something really special about being able to have a personal relationship with your clients. Um, for me, myself, I noticed that it, I care more about the work that I'm doing. I have more buy-in to make them successful. And so I've kind of instilled that in the team as we've grown. And I've noticed that that carries through. Like they are very, very invested in these people, which goes both ways, right? It's like, oh my gosh, okay, I'm coming up with this great idea, blah, blah, blah. But it's also, you know, sometimes clients sabotage themselves. You know, you've seen that happen um, where you're like, hey, if we just do this one thing, like it's going to, we're going to make a huge impact. And they're like, hmm. No, I don't want to do that. And so it's very, very frustrating, right? With, you know, with your typical marketing agency, it's like, oh, okay, cool. We gave them an option. They didn't want to do it. For us, it's like, but why don't you want to like, come on, you know? So it's, we're a lot more invested. So emotions run all over the place, mostly excitement uh, for the most part. <laughs> so yeah, that's, uh, that's the team and we're all over the place. So We've got two people in Florida. We have uh, someone in Memphis, uh, right outside of Boston. Lo and I are currently in Southern California, but we are soon to be digital nomads. So we're going to be working from Europe for all of next year, which is going to be really cool. And our designer is based in Croatia. You are all over. Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree with you. I think that that's sometimes what can separate successful agencies um, to produce results for their clients is, you, do you know them? Yeah. <laughs> you know, is it just a client or do you know who that client is? Do you know what their goals are? Do you know why they're doing this? Um, I think that is super important. So super small team. How do you then approach hiring? So clearly I haven't hired that many times so far. We don't really have turnover uh, for obvious reasons. Like I'm building a company that people are really happy to work at because happy people do great work. Um, so my approach to hiring is not, does someone have this specific skill set? Because we're not, to a certain extent, we're not doing miracles. We're just doing work, right? And a lot of this, you can train people. So the first thing I look at is, is someone passionate? Do they care? And are they willing to work? So I take the most interested in candidates, the most interesting candidates with uh, service industry backgrounds, um, people who have done like actual hard work, because like I know from, you know, firsthand how if you go from that to having like this sweet remote desk job that you can do from anywhere and you work with really great people, you are so happy. You have it made and you appreciate it, right? Versus if you know, you've know you never had a job before, you just graduated and maybe got your master's in marketing. So you think you're a genius and you, know, you apply for this job because you think that this company would be so lucky to have you. Um, it is, it's just like the wrong attitude. So I've interviewed a lot of people who are like very like flippant and entitled and like, you would be lucky to have me. And I think that in some areas, you know, there's some companies who want that, that, is, that has its place. Uh, but my, the, the culture of conversations digital is very much like chill. Like let's have a good time. Let's care. We're different because we give a shit about what we're doing. And that is our primary differentiating factor is trying really hard. We never act like we know everything because no one knows everything. And this, this shit changes all the time. SEO is changing all the time. What works on social media changes all the time. And what works for each individual person in, in a different city is going to change also. So, you know, when you first start working with a new client, you're like, Hey, 
here's three different bowls of spaghetti that we're going to throw against the wall. We're going to watch what happens. We're going to measure the results and whatever sticks the best, we're going to take that and repeat and iterate on it so that we can be successful. Um, but we never make those promises of like, this is going to work. And I, I always tell my team, like, if you have made a mistake, the best thing you can do is say, I messed up. And I'm fixing it as quickly as possible. And I'm sorry, because that's another big thing is, and I noticed that even in the hiring process, I, you know, pay attention to people taking responsibility for themselves and their mistakes. And I really disagree with a lot of this girl boss culture going around. And one of them is say, thank you instead of I'm sorry. No, dude, if you are late, you know, if you're, if you want a job from me, and you are 15 minutes late to a 30-minute Zoom interview that you can do from anywhere, do not say, thank you for waiting. I ended that, I ended that call immediately, girl. I was like, this, this is over. This is super over. You better apologize. <laughs> oh, there's so, yes, there's so much because you're so right. I feel the exact same way. I also like hard skills in this industry. <laughs> They're different every day. You know, there's different yeah. <laughs> there's different coding languages, there's different social media platforms, SEO changes, there are algorithm updates all the time. What you were doing last month doesn't work next month. So I do, I think that attitude, be a hard worker. I, I liked what you said. Try hard. Yeah. Like just try hard. <laughs> just try real hard. Have a good attitude, care about it. I would so much rather like cultivate that on a team, you know, than someone who's an expert at something mm -hmm. that won't matter in two years. I think that we look for athletes, a lot hard workers know how to be a part of a team. Oh, yeah. So if you have like coaching experience or you were a part of college athletics, but then yeah, we also look at service industry. If you've worked retail, if you've worked in a restaurant, hotels, like you get it. And there is happiness, but there is appreciation. A lot of times when I'm stressed and I'm busy, I'm like, but I'm not working at Staples. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I think that's super important. Exactly. I like that about athletes and people who are part of teams. That's actually, that hasn't been on my radar, but it's going to be going forward. That's a really cool idea. And I, I agree with you on the girl boss stuff too. I think that, um, I do think like strong boundaries, like saying, thank you instead of I'm sorry could be necessary, but I think you have to establish there's a problem before you come out like ready to fight. Yeah. If you just wasted someone's time and you know that, that they were investing in you for like no good reason, you should say you're sorry. On the flip side, I'm not hating on all the girl boss stuff. There's some really good stuff out there. You've probably seen, uh, there's like some kind of stat or meme that I'm paraphrasing and we'll probably get a little bit wrong that if a woman's going to apply for a job, she reads it carefully and makes sure that she has 100% of the criteria checked off before she applies. If a man is looking at that same job, 50, 60%, he's just going to go for it. Right. Uh, and I've always been a go for it kind of person. I've lied to get jobs. I have fake <laughs> skills that I didn't have. My first job as a news reporter I got because we were going to be editing all of our own video, of course. People didn't know how to do that. One-man band reporters were just starting to be a thing as they cut costs. And the manager interviewing me said, do you know how to use Final Cut Pro? And I said, yes, sir. I've been using it for a couple years now. I'm really efficient <laughs> at nonlinear editing. I knew it was a nonlinear editing system because I'd heard that said before. Uh, so just threw that out there and, and that was good enough. And I got the job. And I asked, you know, what, what's our access to the newsroom after hours? And they were like, you can come in anytime because, you know, sometimes you have to work late on things. So the second I got keys, I went upstairs. I took out the Final Cut Pro because I don't know if it still does, but back then it came with like a guidebook, right? The software had like a guidebook with it. A physical book. Yeah. Physical book. I uploaded some video that I had taken just with some friends and I started playing with it, going through the book and taught myself how to edit using Final Cut Pro uh, in time to start the job and actually do it correctly. That's amazing. It goes back to like, are you only lie if you're willing to hustle and learn the thing. Yes. But anything can be learned. You just have to, going back, try hard. Life's easier if you try hard. 
Yes, I completely agree. And like I said, especially those those technical skills, right? Like you can learn to code, you can learn whatever the new tools, software are, but the soft skills and being resourceful, things like time management, yeah, you know, and how to prioritize. That stuff's really hard to figure out sometimes. And it's hard to teach. It's really hard to teach. So that's something that you want to look for when you're hiring. I don't know. Do you guys do this? I, though, for my last hire, I did like a little, like an exercise where I created like a five part thing of like what a typical day of work would look like and had the, had my five top candidates complete that. I did pay them um, for their time because I knew I wasn't going to be hiring all of them. And I, after, you know, I've gone through some long interviews where, you know, 20 hours of work later, Google's like, no, thank you. Um, but yeah, so having them do kind of like a homework assignment and track their hours because you see not just the quality of work, but you see how efficient they were at doing it. Do you guys do like a little test thing when you're hiring? We have tests and we will do exercises and things like that. But I think ours are geared more around like hard skills. Analyze this page. Tell us what content links, things like that. Like um, really detailed stuff or testing their knowledge on Google you know, like, what do you know about the penguin update? <laughs> yeah. But I do, I think you're right. And we overlook those things, especially I think for digital marketing agencies, those softer skills. But that does, because I, I want hard workers. I'm a hard worker. I love working, right? Yeah. But I also want to leave plenty of room for people to have their lives or, and to be able to just deal with their shit, <laughs> you know, like I don't want you to sacrifice things to have to be at your desk if you're not going to be a hundred percent. So I like stuff like that. You know, if they happen to pencil in, I'm going to take my dog for a walk at four o'clock. Like, okay. All right. I, that checks out. Like, I like that. I appreciate that, you know? Yeah. So it's good. It's good stuff. Yeah. I always tell my team, I really don't care if you're sitting at your desk or like what you're doing. I really care that the job's getting done um, well and that you're being kind to people and you know that our clients are happy. That's kind of the criteria. Other than that, if you, know, you worked ahead earlier this week and got a whole bunch of stuff done, if you did a Pomodoro session, you were just super efficient and like knocking out a bunch of small stuff and then you don't have anything to do on Friday... I don't care if you go surfing, you know, if someone needs you keep that notification on, but like, I don't care what you're doing. Yeah. You're punish people for being efficient. No, <laughs> no. And that's the whole thing. When I was working full-time jobs, I always felt punished for being efficient because in a full-time office job, what happens is you do all of this work really efficiently and well, and then they give you more stuff to do and you're getting paid the same to do more stuff just because you were quick and good. And it's often less important, less urgent. It, they're just creating work for the sake of work. And I, I hate that. I loathe that. So do what makes an impact. Take care of your team. And I, I agree. Like I, I'm happy to be accessible to my team. It does not take anything to reply to Slack, even to say, hey, I'm not at my desk. I'll be back in 20 minutes or I'll take care of this first thing tomorrow. I have no problem doing that. It's easy. So... Slack is such a great tool for team management. Like I feel like it's changed the game for remote work in so many ways. And my team started using uh, little emojis. Like if they're going to be away from their desk for a certain amount of time, they'll pick an emoji. So some of them are obvious, like going on a run, right. Or like having a, like, you know, there's like a cheeseburger one. Um, but some of them are really fun because you don't know what they're doing. You don't know what that is. I don't, and I don't typically ask. It's not my, again, none of my business what you're doing as long as your work's getting done. We have also started that and it people get creative. I appreciate that. <laughs> yeah. It's another way for people to express themselves and you have to keep it fun no matter what industry you're in. Um, and, and the legal industry can get redundant sometimes, right? It can get you know, a little lackluster. So you have to find ways to make it fun. We have to find ways to make it fun for our clients too. And so that's kind of what we're always trying to evolve. I made this suggestion to the marketing team. Um, they didn't take it, so that's fine, but I still think it's a good <laughs> idea. Ready for this? All right. So when we get on a client call for like a monthly marketing meeting or whatever, there's usually a few of us on and we're on like 
10, 15 minutes before doing prep stuff and chit chatting about how the meeting is going to go. So my idea is that as the client's joining the room, we play an intro song for them as if they're walking into an arena, like I am the tiger or like something, you know, really badass, a Lizzo song. Um, oh yeah. And, and like have it like kind of like slowly fade out, you know, as, as we start talking, what a cute idea, right? They're not doing it. They, they didn't seem to think it was a great idea. It's an adorable idea. I support you. I support you. If you had the right song. Mm-hmm. It has to be the right song for the right person. You mentioned earlier that uh, your agency is chill, but you're also very hardworking, very obviously. This is your agency. You're about to start traveling. I know that you pay very close attention to sort of um, taking care of yourself. What do you do when you need to decompress? What are some of your best routines, best rituals? Oh, I love this. I actually did a, just did a workshop for my team on this, like ideas. Did you? Yeah. So one of the things is I have a standing desk. Uh, I bought everyone who wanted one on the team, a standing desk as well, because I think that sitting makes us tired. Like when you're sitting all day and you don't, you know, you know, standing up actually forces you to do like little stretches and move around and, you know, walk away. It's easier to walk away from your desk if you're already standing. Um, so one of the big things is if things are not going my way, right? If, you know, something's not happening, I hit a tech support issue, like whatever, it's not going the way that I want it to. Um, I walk away from my desk. That's the number one thing that I do. Um, I'll get a snack or make a drink. That's like the base level, depending on how much, if I have time, I'll put on a meditation, like a guided meditation. I use this app called insight timer and it's got tons of free, cool guided meditations on it. Uh, if I have a little bit more time, I'll take a shower, which it sounds kind of weird to take a shower, but I, I highly recommend taking a shower in the middle of your workday, especially if you work from home, because there's something about it where it calms down and whatever you're thinking about changes a little bit. And I feel like I'm often able to problem solve better. Um, somehow a shower gives me the answers oftentimes. So that's a big thing. Restart the day. That makes sense. Yeah. Um, and a walk. Yeah. Good walk. I like to brush my teeth. Oh, I love that. I don't know what it is, but a lot of times, like if I get towards like this part of the day, it's 2.50 PM. If I start feeling sluggish, a little tired for whatever reason, I brush my teeth and that like, okay, all right. I got another, I got another couple hours. I like that. So I think probably the same thing. It's like, you're starting the day over again, you know, like it's 7 AM. What about floss? I feel like flossing is a good one because it's like, who likes to floss? And you don't like to do it right before bed because you're like trying to finish your nighttime routine to get in bed. But I feel like, like, yeah, flossing would be a really good one that would have tons of benefits. Yes, tons. Floss reset. But I think it's along those same lines, like showering, you just, like, dry your hair and like change your outfit. But brushing your teeth, that's five minutes. You're good. Yeah. So I love that one. It's good stuff. What else? You do anything else? Um, walks. I, I encourage everyone to take a walk and leave their home at least once a day. So if that's the mailbox, the gym, the coffee shop, go to lunch with a friend. Um, I have to, so like once a month I schedule these like team sessions, like huddles where I set my little Pomodoro timer. I'm really obsessed about Pomodoro and timing. Uh, and I'll set a timer for each thing. It's like, okay, 10 minutes, schedule lunch with a friend sometime this month. Schedule time to go work outside of your home one time this month. Um, because if you don't, you get in a rut working from home. There's a lot of challenges working from home. So I really have to encourage people to get up, get out of your house for a little while. Again, like if you're sitting at your desk for six to eight hours a day and you're not moving, you are not getting much done. You might think you are, but you are not getting much done at all. I work in one and a half to two hour bursts at the most. And then I'll take a a long break and then come back to it. Well, you have to generate ideas. Sure. Could I sit here and optimize content or, you know, look at spreadsheets for eight? I mean, I wouldn't enjoy it, but yeah, but you're never going to be able to create ideas or solve problems or find solutions for your clients or your team in that type of setting. I think you'd I, the sunlight thing. Yeah. Just did you see the sun today? Because when you get like Michigan, I'll get to Thursday and I'll be like, 
Ooh. Have I been outside this week? And those little things. It's easier not to. It is. It's easier not to go outside. Which that just seems very counterintuitive. But you're right. It's We kind of have to force ourselves right now. It's something I feel like we're not admitting to a lot. And this whole, oh, working from home is so great culture. It is great. People think it's more disciplined to just sit at your desk. And it's not. It's easier to just sit at your desk and you're not doing anything meaningful. It is way more productive and way better to move around, get out of your house, go get a snack, start some laundry. You just said it, productive. I think that people might feel like they're doing what they're supposed to be doing. It's a very, it's like, I, I think our parents' generation, Monday through Friday, nine to five, you get a half an hour for lunch and two 15 minute breaks. Yeah. But you're not getting the best out of your best employees. If you're sort of like anchoring them to a chair and having them stare at a screen for eight hours a day. Exactly. We don't do that. I don't want any part of that. But I think there are a lot of other people that feel like that's their expectation. And I've noticed the more chill I've been with my team, because I had a, a friend at a, another uh, legal marketing agency when the pandemic started, we were doing Zoom calls and he was like, hey, how do you make sure that people are working when they're supposed to be working if they're remote? And my reply was like, that's the wrong question. So if you're asking that, you're the problem because you're micromanaging people. And I've noticed the more chill I am and the more you know, I just instill upon like, get your stuff done. These are your responsibilities. I'm not giving you tasks. I'm giving you responsibilities. You're responsible for your tasks. Get your stuff done. Make it on time. Be nice. Make sure the clients are happy. Beyond that, I don't care. So what I notice is the more chill I am in that way, the more they are working harder. No one wants to miss anything, right? But also people know they can go to the doctor in the middle of the day whenever they want. Just put on your calendar so we know that you're not available at this time. But if someone has something to do or... And and you know we have unlimited uh, personal days. Uh, so if you're like, hey, some stuff just happened and I'm in a really bad place. Cool. Uh, why don't you assign your task to someone else for the day, reschedule your meetings or have someone else take them for you and like go take a break. And like, I've even like bought spa gift cards for people because like I saw that they were just like working too hard too much and like needed a personal day and have like forced personal days on people. That's fun. No. And it is, I do think like (laughs) it's taking care of your team, but it is taking care of the business as well. Like that is a better return on investment. This is not slighting the company. It's huge. Yeah. You get the best out of these amazing people you've hired. Well, and they have no doubt that they are valued. And that's the biggest thing is that a lot of companies make their employees feel like they're still proving something. And for me, I make sure that my team knows that they are enough, they are valued, they're appreciated, and they are loved in a professional way, right? Like we're not best friends, but they are cared about. Your story matters. It matters so much that everything else should flow from it. Leave in the vulnerable parts, connect with people in a human way. The vulnerable aspects of who we are can be the hardest to share, but can win more clients in the long run. A huge thank you to Megan for sharing her story and unbelievable insights with us today. You have been listening to Laher with me, Sonia Palmer. If you found this content insightful, inspiring, or it just made you smile, please share this episode with the trailblazers in your life. For more about Megan, check out our show notes. And while you're there, please leave us a review or a five-star rating. It really goes a long way for others to discover the show. And I will see you next week on Laher, where we'll shed light on how another of the brightest and boldest women in the legal industry climbed to the top of her field. Mm-hmm.